a definition of ethnic cleansing or genocide is. The term ethnic cleansing refers to the removal of people who belong to a specific ethnic or religious group from a country, whether by forcibly displacing them or by killing them. The goal of such actions is to establish an ethnically uniform country or other geographic region. In addition to removing people, ethnic cleansing often involves removing any physical cultural evidence of their existence within that region. Just four examples of that in history that we would quickly uh, remember. There was a Turkish massacre of Armenians during World War I. There was a Nazi holocaust during World War I where six, over six million Jews lost their life. There was a genocide in Bosnia during the 1990s. There was forced displacement and mass killings in Rwanda as well during the 1990s. If you remember, I've referenced before, there is a, uh, an internationally known book called Night, written by uh, Eli Wiesel. And in that book, Eli Wiesel tells the story of how he, as a young child, was taken off into a concentration camp at Auschwitz. And he tells the story of being, I think, 11 or 12 years old, of watching three individuals being hung before him. And when the gallows were let go and the three fell, one of them was a young child, and he did not die immediately. In fact, they stood there for minutes and minutes, if not hours, waiting for. His body was so emaciated that his own weight would not suffocate him. And as they stood there, all in attention, watching, incapable of moving, for fear of discipline, somebody in front of Wissell said, and under his breath, where is God? Where is God in all of this? And Eli Wissell whispered under his breath back, he is not here. God is dead. How could he let this happen? In our series that we started two weeks ago in Esther, the book of Esther in the Old Testament, we were coming to Esther chapter 3 this morning where we see this plot take place to once again wipe out all of the Jews. And we see from the shadows, as I've entitled this series, God is still ruling God is still governing. Although it is not foresee, it's not seeable from our eyes, God rules and governs from the shadows. And if you and I are honest, if we would have been standing there with Eli Wiesel or in any one of these ethnic cleansing genocide events that I mentioned throughout the world, we too potentially could very easily conclude, God, you have forgotten about us, you have left us. As we dive into this chapter and then next week and the week after, it's going to be fun to see how God rules from the shadow as the most powerful king in that area 
issues a decree to wipe out all of God's people. Before we read the scripture, though, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present this morning and that you would teach us. Father, we confess that we come this morning with many different anxieties, frustrations, hurts. Lord, we ask that you would overrule all of those. And whether we see you right now clearly sitting on the throne, or if we are wondering and believing that you must be in the shadows, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and that you, through the kindness of your, of your Son Jesus, that you would minister to our heart and our soul and that we would taste deeply of your grace. Holy Spirit, would you teach us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to read all of chapter 3 here in a second, but before we do that, I just want to jump in really quickly and recap the five points that we looked at last weekly. I'm not going to recap them, just for the most part, just share them. Last week in chapter 2, we saw that we should be amused at the overindulgences of King Xerxes. King Xerxes in chapter 1 indulged, overindulged by throwing this party for six months, which cost millions and millions of dollars. And then in chapter 2, we see how he overindulges by taking a 12-month period to purify and to beautify hundreds, if not thousands of women who were to be paraded before him and spend a one-night stand for him to choose his new queen. Point number two that we looked at was we should cry at the treatment of women in the book of Esther. It should break our hearts. And it should break our hearts not because we're just looking at a story told thousands of years ago. It should break our hearts because as we read that book and we see how King Xerxes just mocked women for just this property, their bodies. We should cry at that because we should see it not just a story from years ago, but we should cry because we see it in our culture today. And not only do we see it in our culture, but we, we men have participated in that. We are guilty. The third thing was Esther was a woman of grace, wisdom, obedience, and loyalty. I love how she's continued to seek out her adopted uh, father in Mordecai. And she demonstrated great grace and loyalty to her people by not telling, I am a Jew. She wisely kept that under wraps and is still under wraps. Fourthly, we saw Esther's rise was not just dumb luck or because she was beautiful. God was ruling and governing from the shadows. Yes, it's true, we're told in the text that God gave her great beauty. And we're told it twice, that he gave her great beauty and great beauty in form. But God also gave her uh, abundant wisdom and grace, as we highlighted in point three. And it was because of a combination of those God ruling from the shadows that Esther rises to the top. She had a sense of winsomeness in her that only came from God. And then the fifth one, and here's my confession. Isn't it funny how you do this? 
If you were here last week, you remember me poking fun at the Reverend Dr. Jim Bland and how he had misspoken a word in his reading of Scripture earlier. And then the whole point five last week, I kept saying, even in the point that Jesus is our bride, my point was, our bride is vastly different than King Xerxes. And for that four or five minutes that I talked about that point, I kept saying that Jesus is our bride, and in my head I kept thinking, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> but in my newness and maturity of preaching, I just went with what I thought I was saying. So you'll see I corrected it for this week. Our bridegroom, Jesus, is vastly different than King Xerxes. Jesus as our bridegroom, loves us in a way that we didn't see King Xerxes' model. And if we're honest, he loves us in a way that we don't love our own spouse. Uh, Let's move on to Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all of the officials who were with him. And all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. For Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all of the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of eight hour, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all of the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Don't you just absolutely love the epitome of their lostness? They just issue and send out by couriers a decree to kill millions. And they respond by sitting down and having a drink. (laughs) Um, This morning I want to look at three different points that I'm going to draw. There are more points to draw out, but we're just going to look at three of them. The first one that I want to look at is there are three life-altering decisions that are made in this chapter. And the first one is the life-altering decision of Haman's decision to nurse a grudge. In verse 3 of this chapter that we just read, or verse 1, I'm sorry, we saw the, we read these words, after these things... And I just want to pause for a second. We, we highlighted this last week that there was, chapter 2 started out similarly, and there was a, a, approximately a four-year period between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I just want to highlight this morning as we see these words at the beginning of what is about to come, which is this just despicable decree. And it just starts out after these things. Isn't it true that when any of us have ever experienced absolutely horrific events in our life, you didn't wake up with a premonition or you didn't wake up with an email from God saying, today's the day I'm going to break you. It never works out that way. It's always after these things, something happens and you didn't see it coming. But we're told of this life-altering decision by uh, Haman's unbridled grudge. And we see in verse 1, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, some of you who really know the Old Testament well, you already know why there was a grudge that was just inside of Haman for all of the Jews. And yes, certainly a part of Haman's grudge was everybody has been commanded by the king to bow down and this man won't and it, might, it, it, it grinds me. And his self-evelation and self-worship were threatened by just this one man. That's certainly a part of the grudge. But if you know the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel commanded Saul to wipe out, to to annihilate King Agag, 
who was a pagan king. I want you to, Saul, I want you to destroy King Agag, and I want you to take out all of the Amalekites along with them. And if you're familiar with 1 Samuel 14 and 15, Saul chooses to befriend the king instead. And as he befriends him, let me back up a second, God wants the Amalekites wiped out because they are the the enemies of the Jews, going all the way back to post-exile from Egypt. And King, or King, Saul, King Saul responds by befriending King Agag and the Amalekites and choosing to not wipe them out, but to take some of their best plunder as his own. And this infuriates God. And so Saul comes in and, and chastises, or Samuel comes in and chastises Saul and then does the deed himself. And all that did was continue to foster this great hatred between King Agai's descendants, which is the Agagites, who Haman comes from. Now the truth is, when, when a person's born, yes, they're totally depraved, yes, they're born sinful, but they're not born with a sense of bitterness and anger and wrath and fury that we see in this text. They're Infants don't just naturally hate groups of people. That's something that has to be taught within them. And we can just assume that when Mordecai let it be known that he was a Jew and that, that is the reason why he would not bow down to Haman, Haman immediately knew, I remember my genealogy. I remember the history of my people. I remember how your people tried to wipe out my people, and I hate you. And he was in this position of power to do something about it. He couldn't just, he could have. He chose not to just walk away. Instead, he chose to go to King Xerxes and tell them and make up this plan that these are a people who do not bow down to you or to me. There are people who don't follow our laws. He stretched the truth. Why? Because if he had this, this nursing of a grudge within him. And we see the decree um, that is issued. Because we're told in the text, in verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. It's interesting to me, I did a word study on that in the Hebrew language, and that word means heat, wrath, poison, venom. And then literally the word means uh, to be on heat. (laughs) How do we say it in our, in our culture today? Ooh, he's getting red-faced. He might be a little angry. And we're told that Haman was filled with fury. It's interesting. There's one other text in the Old Testament that uses that exact phraseology. And I hope you already jumped to the conclusion. There's a parallel story 
in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel that fits beautifully with this. We're told in Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Because of that unbridled grudge, that bitterness, that hatred, he then took a next step and we're told in verse 6 that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In his mind, he couldn't handle the thought of just getting vengeance on Mordecai. We're told in the next verse that he just, in that verse that he wants to destroy all of them. Men, old, young, women, and children. What, what should be a conclusion for us? What's an application for us as we look at Haman in this just absolute unbridled nursing of a grudge? Truth is, I told you a, a month ago this horrible act by my young nephew and he claims and I still believe him that what he did was an accident that it was an intentional accident but he didn't intend for the results that that happened to take place in the killing of somebody else and so it may very well have been an unintended murder by my nephew up in the state of Michigan but here's the truth He didn't just wake up that day or in a fit of rage decide to happen. It was something that was nursing within him for a while. He wanted vengeance on this kid. He wanted this kid to suffer for the things that he had said to him racially. He wanted him to pay. And so the truth is there, there is evidence that for days this grudge got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so as we look at Haman, and if you know the backstory, the truth is, and you should conclude, we don't typically just fall into grievous, awful, despicable sins. Haman nursed this grudge so long that his heart became calloused and bitter. And it just became easy for him. Let's wipe them all out. And, and then let's, let's have a drink. <laughs> what sins are you nursing right now? What grudges are you holding that God didn't hold up his end of the deal and you're angry? What person has disappointed you, be it a boss, a coworker, a, a good friend who you thought was your best friend? Somebody, we all have someone in our life that has wronged us, and we wonder, God, where are you? Are you nursing a grudge? Second thing we see in this passage, a life-altering decision um, Albert, we're jumping forward a little bit. 
The second life-altering decision is King Xerxes' decision to lead with his eyes closed. So just, just to give you a, a, a little bit of a relaxed breath here, the three points are not proportional. The text predominantly deals with Haman, and this next point is just a small part, so we're not even going to spend much time on it. Um, but King Xerxes' decision to lead with his eyes closed. He was the king who had just spent millions of dollars, but the truth is in this instant, several years later, he was leading asleep at the wheel because he violated what we would say are fundamental principles of how to lead. Obviously, he wasn't a follower of the Old Testament, God's word, but he would have benefited if he was. In verses 8 through 10, we see, Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Please, please tell me that you think he's, a, he's engaging in some serious hyperbole, some serious exaggerating when he says, They don't keep any of your laws. The truth is they probably kept his laws better than his own people. Just not this one. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And then we jump a verse down to verse 12. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Haman comes before the king and he lies. Do you know what's interesting? King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, is asleep at the wheel. He's leading with his eyes closed because in the text prior to that, we saw that Haman was at the courts, at the gates of the city with other people, and they were casting lots. Do you know what they were doing? They were casting lots, and it says it took place for a year. They were casting lots until they got what they wanted. And when they finally got the lot that they wanted, it was then and only then, now I've got what we want. Now, let's, now, now I can go in before the king. For 11 and three-quarter months, the lots that they're casting didn't come up with, it's okay to wipe out the Jews. It took them 12 months. If anything, he's persistent. He had some stick to I guess, which would be one positive quality. And then he goes before the king and he lies through his teeth because he's nursing that grudge. Now, why do I say that King Xerxes was asleep at the wheel? Why do I say that he was leading with his eyes closed? Because he took the word of one man and said, let it be written in stone. 
You would think with a decision like that where you have just issued or you're about to issue a decree to wipe out millions that you would talk to a council, that you would seek advice from multiple people. And instead, King Xerxes, Xerxes listens to one man whose pride was hurt and he issues this decree. Many of us here today have been deeply wounded by leaders within the church who have single-handedly done this. So on one hand, I want to say to you that I'm giving you permission to make sure that I stay accountable to a group. This is what we value in our denomination, a plurality of leaders. You have the right and the permission and the responsibility to say, are you doing this on your own or is this coming from, is, 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 is this a... But then you also have the responsibility to do that yourself. Before we make harsh decisions or rash judgments or quick, ill-tempered Uh, movements towards something or away from something. Seek counsel. Don't listen to just your own inner voice. And then issue a decree, so let it be written. Haman was asleep at the wheel, and the truth is you and I often are asleep at the wheel as well. And it's not a biblical model. Here's the third thing. Mordecai's decision, this is a life-altering decision. Mordecai's decision to remain faithful. Don't you love the resolve within Mordecai? I wonder if Mordecai did that with great, um, great confidence, great boldness. Or if he did that with water running down his leg, wondering what will be the result of my decision, I will not bow down to you. Again, if we go back to Daniel chapter 3, isn't the parallel beautiful here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And I love these words. But if not, our God will deliver us. But if not, if he chooses not to, in his providential sovereign ruling either invisible sight or of his providential sovereign ruling from the shadows. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You are calling me to do something that violates God's word. You're calling me to do something that violates my relationship with the king who has bought and has redeemed me. But if not, I'm okay with the consequences. 
Why did Mordecai do that? Because Mordecai was familiar with Exodus chapter 20. He knew the law. It was a part of his DNA. We're told um, in 1 Timothy by Paul to his protege Timothy, where he says and reminds Timothy, the law is good. God's law is good when it's used properly. And Mordecai knew that using the law good in this instance, Deuteronomy 4, you shall not make for yourselves a card image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We have the benefit of looking back and seeing what happens in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and 6 and the rest of the book. And we know the outcome for Mordecai. It ends well for him. But in that moment when Mordecai said to Haman, I will not bow down to you. You are not my God. I won't do it. Mordecai didn't know the rest of the story. He didn't know the next chapter. He bowed down because he wanted to be faithful to his true king. Now, you and I face opportunities on a daily basis where we bump up against, should I compromise here? You know, if I do this, I'm going to assimilate a little bit more into the culture around me, but I'm going to do so all with the intent of winning people towards Jesus. And so we're all forced with. We all have numerous opportunities. Am I going to bow down to this or my true king? And here's the beauty of the gospel. It would be so easy to read this story because God's never mentioned in the book. It'd be so easy to read this story and conclude, and this is the, this is the end of the sermon, be like Mordecai. He was faithful and he was and he should be honored for, he did something that nobody else did. And so there's a part of me that, that I want to be like Mordecai, but the truth is you and I know that more than not, We are the people bowing down. We are the weak. We are the sinful. But for the grace of God go I. And the beauty of the gospel reminds us. The Father whispers into our ear through the Holy Spirit. I know how many times you've been unfaithful. I know how often you nurse a grudge to an unhealthy manner. I know what you think. I know what you say. And because of all of that, I'm not going to bring a worldwide devastation again. Because of all that I know about you and because I love you, I'm going to provide one who is faithful. And Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, as Jim reminded us a few weeks ago, he is the great shepherd who also became the spotless lamb. 
And so although there's this longing within all of us, I want to be like Esther. I want to have that boldness. I want to be like Mordecai. We have to go through this little gospel waltz, this gospel dance where we, we have to fundamentally, I believe, remind ourselves, but God knows the truth that I'm not. And he loves me anyways. And even in the fact that knowing I'm not, he sent his son to die for me, and not only to die for me, that's not the end of the gospel story, but to give me his righteousness. And then that's not the end of the story. Not only is he rewriting everything that I did by giving me his righteousness that the Father will see, he then gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us. To be able to only by the grace of God and him living in us through the Spirit to be able to say, Jesus, please help me. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. But because of you working in me, I'm not going to bow down. What are those things that you bow down for? What are those things that you bow down to? And as you think through those things, for some of us, the list is short. For some of us, the list is long. But we all have a list. And as you're rehearsing that list in your mind, you run to the cross. You preach the gospel to yourself. And then with the Holy Spirit living in you, go be faithful. Him through you. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we need you. Lord, I, I, wanted, I want to be remembered as someone like Mordecai, but you know that I've, I've disqualified myself from that long, long ago. Jesus, would you continue to make us new and make us more and more into the image of your Son? Would you give us a boldness that is deeply saturated and grounded in your grace and in your kindness and in your mercy. Father, would you help us this week to honor you and to glorify your name when we rub up against the wars of this world? Would you help us to be faithful? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.